Brad Bird is the two-time Oscar winner of Disney Pixar's The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Today on Crew Call, we speak with him about the 14-year journey of Incredibles 2 to the big screen, as well as his passion project, 1906, about the San Francisco fire and earthquake. I want to know, and I know you've probably spoken about this, but I want to know because I'm such a huge fan of this movie. Why did it take so long? Why did it take so long for the sequel? Um, there was no plan. It's not like I sat down and went, you know what would be the correct interval? It'll drive them crazy if it's 14 years, you know? I mean, uh, you know, it's not like that ever happened. You know, I had uh, the core idea while we were publicizing the first film. Um, and I also, which is the role switch between Bob and Helen. And I thought, oh, that'll work. That'll be cool. And then I had the unexploded bomb of Jack Jack and, and uh, the fact that the audience knew he had multiple powers, but the Incredibles or the Parr family did not. So those two things I had going for me almost when I was, you know, as I was finishing the first film. Um, but I didn't have the superhero plot thing, the villain story. And so I kept thinking of uh, stuff, but it wasn't like that's all I was doing. I was doing other movies and there were movies like 1906 that you mentioned that, that I was trying to get made that, you know, for one reason or another didn't come together. Um, there were the movies that I ended up doing, Ghost Protocol and, and Ratatouille and, and uh, uh, Tomorrowland. And uh, so I it's not like I was sitting around going, you know, if only another Incredibles idea could come to me, you know, then I would have a job. It's not, it's not like that. Um, so, uh, I think that the, the thing was the villain story. And I, finally I, I had something that I liked and, and I pitched it to Pixar and they said, great, let's do it. They told Disney, um, Disney green lit it. Um, we were in production. Then, uh, Toy Story four was having trouble coming together. And, uh, so they said, uh, we want to move you up a year and can you do it? And I kind of went, I guess, you know, I think so. You know, having run in front of a train before with Ratatouille and, and to some level on Iron Giant as well. So we kind of said that. And then I realized, you know, it, you know, the, the villain story wasn't coming together in a way that supported the role switch part. And the, and the family part, which is the part that I was really committed to. And so uh, I that part of the story kept changing and it was changing to a horrific um, in terms of getting it done on time. And, you know, with the mounting expectations for the film, once it was announced, you know, there was all this pressure like it better be worth the wait and all that stuff, which is, of course, really helps you creatively. I mean, it couldn't be worse, actually, you know, don't disappoint me, man, you know, and it's like, oh, God. So uh, with that part of the story continually changed. And um, I came up with another idea that I was very excited about that had all these comedic possibilities. But again, it wasn't emotional with the family. So I kept part of that idea. And Winston Dever, the Bob Odenkirk character, came out of that. But then giving him a sister and all of that kind of came, came along later. So because I, I had always thought, OK, they're always about 
Pixar is always about a think tank and they put something together. They could rough something up, put together a visual thing, and then they could say, nope, let's tear it all up and start all over again. I had always envisioned, my assumption was that that's what was going on with this, that it was just this kind of what I mean, Disney, that, happens, that plussing. That, that, that happens plussing. a lot at Pixar and, and that's kind of the, the way things are are done and you know sometimes it, it works really well and other times things you know really don't come together till the last second and and uh um this movie was a race i mean there's no other way to say it you know we had this looming deadline that we were committed to and um <clears throat> you know we had an amazing team though and no one wanted to come up with a movie that felt rushed we wanted to move quick and respect the, the, the deadline. At the same time, we didn't want any compromises. And I feel like the, the film uh, is terrific looking and, and you know, uh, I'm really impressed at, at you know, the team at Pixar. And I was on the first film too, but it's even better now. I mean, we not only had a bunch of people returning who worked on the first film, but we had a lot of talent that had come to the studio in the interval and had seen The Incredibles but um, and wanted to work on it. So the vibe was really good, very positive. What was your timeline from the moment that you started you know, from a go to to finish prod. Uh, well, it's a little bit of a gray area because I was writing part of the time and Disney announced that I was writing, but not that I was committed to direct. So it was kind of like writing was a way for me to say, I think this will work into something that I want to direct, but I'm not committing to it yet. And so it's kind of a gray area, but it felt to me like it was a, John keeps saying three years, John Walker, the producer, uh, but I think it's more like two and a half where where we actually started going. And, uh, you know, for a film of its size and complexity, that's an ambitious schedule. And I'm, again, never about writer's block. It wasn't like there you were like, oh, there, it was just this thing with the, the villain that you were figuring out. Well, writer's block where I'm sitting going, I wish I had an idea. I mean, yeah, never. Uh, well, Sure, there were periods of like, this isn't working. I need to do something else. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of went through boot camp on The Simpsons. And I was on the first eight seasons of The Simpsons. And, uh, you know, we did about to, from 22 to 24 episodes a year. And each one of those scripts were packed. I mean, even though they were 22-minute long episodes, there was probably about 40 minutes worth of material in terms of, a story, B story, you know, intercutting, you know, they're, they're rapid paced. And, and um, if you couldn't move quickly, you got screwed on that because you had another episode coming down the conveyor belt. And I saw some miraculous saves where episodes were kind of not too good. And then there would be a meeting at Fox. We would go to the lot around five o'clock. And whatever state the episode was in when we left, like we're going to change this, change that, da, 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 it'd be like two in the morning. Um, that would be it permanently, forever. And so uh, fear and the schedule was a good motivator. And and uh, so I had I'd been through that kind of ringer before, not exactly in this way, but, um, you know, we have just a phenomenal team. What I've always uh, loved, even when I was, because I saw this when I was a little bit younger, 
the first Incredibles, but what I've always loved about it, which I think many people, it's, it's such a poem to mid-age <laughs> because it's, it's about one's personal renaissance. Like when we think that we're out and we're done and we're tired and that there's no, and there's not another act, there is. Right. And I, can, you, can you talk about that and continuing well, that into the sequel? Yeah, um, that was kind of, um, I had this goofy idea for a superhero who was for some reason past his prime and, you know, missing it. And then I had to sort of create it from there. Um, but what I was going through personally in my life at the time crept into the film, which was that I was starting a family that I had not had a chance to direct a movie yet. And I'd been trying to for years. And I had projects in development, hell, all over town at various studios. And I still want to make several of those films. And now the studios are more enthusiastic about the ideas because I've made some other films that worked. So, but uh, I was faced with a situation of if, if I have a breakthrough, if, if some breakthrough happens and, and I actually get to direct something, then my choice is going to be I'm either... Uh, a bad dad because I'm not around or I'm a bad director because I am around and I didn't want to stink at either one of them and they were both really important to me and th that anxiety of of work and and family and wanting to deliver on both ends was all over that film I mean it crept into it and 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 I didn't really know it until I until we were kind of in production and then I realized hey man in some ways this crazy, you know, superhero film is autobiographical in its anxiety about work and, and family. Now, the motorcycle scene in this movie yes. where she's the big chase. What was your did you have an inspiration for that? Well, I just wanted a, a vehicle chase um, and I wanted her to have a vehicle that that only a stretchy person would be able to really use. In other words, it was designed uniquely for her powers. And, um, you know, her being able to make it long between the front half and, and the back half, and then kind of jackknife herself up in the air um, is, is a cool thing. So, you know, uh, I had the idea for the elasticycle and, and not that the cycle itself stretches, but it separates. And I, I thought, you know, this will be half the motorcycle and half her. And that'll be something that's unique to her. It won't, it won't be an advantage to any, anyone else. When did you start, like when you start breaking down the film and you start, how does it work? How do all the components work? Like... Do you work on it sequence by sequence with the team or are there several people working on every single part of this film at the same time? It's somewhere in the middle. It's it's you have several groups working on different parts, but you don't have the whole film being worked on. I mean, only story works on the whole film, you know, storyboard. Um, and so it ends up that whoever is your story supervisor, he's like usually the only person that understands the film uh, as well as I do, because he has to touch every part of it. So I rely on the story guy to like, when I have an idea, I'll go, does this seem like it'll, it'll play? And they're the really, maybe the editor as well, 
but they're really the only ones that have the the same kind of overview I do for for better or for worse. I mean, sometimes that limits your perspective because you're looking at everything maybe too much. But um, you know, that's a useful person to have when when you've got that many different things happening at once. And and so uh, um, I would say several parts of the movie are being worked on at the same time, but it's always shifting what those parts are. Like when you began, like, like was the motorcycle scene something where you were like, we need to work on this first because it's, it's a major well, set piece. Yeah. What had to be designed. I mean, what people don't realize is that everything you see in one of these films has to be consciously designed and executed. It's not like, um, there, there has always been the theory of a digital backlot of like once you build something, then you have it. You can use it in all films like like they do at a studio lot, you know, where they can grab a, a window from a movie, you know, five years ago and build it into a set that's different. And, all, you know, they have all the pieces. Um, it's always been a good theory, but it never works because the technology improves so quickly that something you built for the previous film, a lot of work has to be done just to get it to talk to the new machine. And, and so you're constantly, the, it's, a, it's a theory, it's never really that useful. You usually have to build most of everything from scratch. Sometimes you can pull something from the previous movie, but they end up being small things like a, a clipboard or something like that, you know, a telephone, you know. Um, it's never a set or anything like that. So, uh, so that the motorcycle chase became important because you're eating up a lot of real estate. She starts in the city. Um, she does stuff in the city, then it ends up getting more rural and then she's in hills and in the tunnel and then it goes into another sort of city area. All of that has to be consciously designed and you don't want to design anything that you can't see. Um, some directors at Pixar like to build bulletproof sets, meaning that you could go anywhere in the set and the detail and the shading is all there. But if you do that, you use a lot of resources and it's nice for the director because the director can put the camera anywhere. But these films, the Incredibles movies, both one and two, are so large and that their budget is the same as the regular Pixar film, even though they're much bigger you know, enterprises. Um, that you have to choose exactly where you're going to be early and so that you're not building anything that you don't see. And um, that means you, you have to commit, which is a scary thing to do when your story's still in flux. Technologically speaking, yeah. and, and in regards to the evolution of CGI, what was the big difference between the last film and, and this film for you? Like well, the difference was immediate. I mean, on the first film, uh, we were trying to do a movie that was every single thing that CG animation was bad at. It was bad at humans. If you look at humans before Incredibles, there are a couple that are kind of good. One of them is Boo in Monsters. And the other one is Jerry from Jerry's Game, who wound up in Toy Story 2 as the guy who fixes uh, Woody. But those two, in my estimation, and, and everybody's opinion is different, but those two are the only ones that, that I think are good. Um, the others are functional. They work, you know, but they're not great. They have, you know, creepy detail to them. I mean, off-putting detail, 
you know, pores in the nose and stuff that you just kind of don't want to see. Um, and uh, hair is usually looks like it's been sprayed uh, for an hour. So it doesn't move much. And, and, you know, that was the state of it when we did incredible. So the, so computer animation at the time was bad at humans. It was bad at hair. It was bad at water. It was bad at fire. Um, and, uh, that's our movie. That's what we had. We didn't have furry animals or, or, or toys that looked like plastic or bugs that had hard shells or it was all meant to be humans that were caricatured, but believable. And so we were on the edge of failure through the whole first movie on, on the absolute technical edge of complete failure. That's kind of the wave that we surfed through the entire production. But I got asked to, to, to take over Ratatouille and Ratatouille was only one film between Incredibles and Ratatouille. And the rigs were way better by the time that, and they had only done cars in between. They learned so much about it on the Incredibles and, and also just technology getting better that by Ratatouille, the, the rigs are noticeably more robust. And rigs are what we call the, it's, it's the equivalent of a digital puppet that you end up animating. And, and you know, the amount of controls you have on the face and, and, and the subtlety with which all of that works, you know, it improves. It's like a car that you're, you're get, you have great drivers, but the better the car is for them to drive, the more the drivers can do. And that's what the animators are. They're drivers of these digital uh, acting cars. And uh, they were fantastic by the time uh, of Ratatouille, and they're even better now. So the, the way the characters look in the film now, they, they look like the same characters, but if you really look, they're different. They are actually what we wanted them to look like on the first film. And we, we could get close, but we couldn't get there. And now we can. Is the CGI infrastructure, meaning like the, the software and the computers or the rigs, is that rebuilt on every, no. is that rebooted on every no, single movie? No, but there was a huge change between uh, the first group of films, everything before Brave and what came after. We did a, we, the, the problem that Pixar got into was that Pixar had, had really kind of created a lot of this software before anybody had it. And it was exclusive to Pixar. So it didn't talk well with any other system that were doing these other animated films. And it was really good. It was the best on the planet, I think. But um, it was the original Pixar system that did Toy Story with a thousand scotch tape fixes on it. So imagine um, a really complicated, tall and wide machine that has um, popsicle sticks and chewing gum and string and wire kind of holding it together. And everybody's going, look, this thing, we're still using this old thing that is from 10 years ago, we're so much better now. Why can't we do it? And they go, do you want to be the film that slows down to make the new system? No, I got to get the film out. Okay, then grab some tape and some bailing wire and some chewing gum and a few popsicle sticks and make your fix, you know? So this thing was this big convoluted and it got the job done. It looks great on screen, but no one wanted to be the guinea pig for the new system that is uh, you know, 
uh, designed to be upgraded. So the first film that had that was Brave, and they had a number of really hard technical issues because it was a new system, and the new system was robust, but it, it was like a car that hadn't been driven. So it had bugs in it all over the place. Um, but it was the, the first of the new system. And, you know, they spent about what it cost to make a movie on building the new system. So, so it was a big deal, and it was a technical, um, you know, leap. Now, jumping over to live-action features, yeah. was that daunting for you, or was that sure. easy? Movies because, are daunting. Because one of the things is... You know, you'll see a director and you're like, well, how do they take this guy and give this guy a superhero movie? And it's a great superhero movie when he was just doing an indie. And it's, of course, he's surrounded with great departments. But I mean, still, Mission was amazing. Oh, thank Mission you. Impossible. I mean, that's the one, that's the, the Ghost Protocol. Yeah, the, the Khalif. Yeah, Burns yeah. Khalifa. Yeah, right. Now, um, but the jump, what, I mean, God, there's got to be a thousand things about how daunting it was. Well, yeah, it was daunting. And, and you know, some people were worried. The good thing is that, I mean, some people on set, you know, this is a very complicated movie. It's shot on five continents. Um, it's got these really elaborate sequences. You know, I had the nutty idea to follow Chris Nolan's uh, example of shooting in IMAX, which only makes things even harder. Um uh, but the good news is Tom Cruise didn't have any doubt. And, and he talked to me, he asked to, to meet with me uh, in the wake of The Incredibles. And we ended up having this fantastic, you know, three hour discussion about movies. And, you know, we could go all over and Tom knew what they were. You know, we ended up landing on Harold Lloyd and saying that he's underrated and, and all this stuff, and which came in handy. And he just said, you know, I, I really like the way you make films. If you ever want to do a live action film, you know, would you be interested in doing one with me? And I said, absolutely. And so fast forward, um, JJ, uh, I'd known JJ for a while and, and JJ had, had asked, offered other films to me that I couldn't do because I was wrapped up in something else. And um, I was trying to get 1906 made and, you know, a couple of years went by and I didn't want to, you know, he tried to make 1906 be my tombstone, you know. Um, so I, I looked around and, and, you know, at movies that were that were kind of gassed up and ready to go. And um, JJ uh, uh, got wind of it and I got a text that said mission question mark. And I went, mm, you know, a spy movie and with Tom and, you know, JJ, and it sounds interesting. And the thing I liked about that particular, I hate this word, but that particular franchise is that they embrace um, uh, different directors' styles. They don't make you do a house style. In other words, they don't have a bunch of departments and you just, they just plug you in and you, you, you kind of oversee the collection of footage. And then the team of editors that has done the other films just edits it and maybe you throw in a suggestion. You know, the mission films were wildly different from one another. They had similarities. They were all mission films with Tom, but the Brian De Palma one didn't look anything like the John Woo one, which wasn't like the JJ one, which I don't think was like mine. 
and and Chris McQuarrie's gone on to do his version of it. And um, I like that the it was more they wanted you to do your style and bring it to their thing. Uh, so that's why it was attractive to me. And um, I think the fact that I had been you know studying film for a long time and and wanting to do live action and had written things that were in live action and uh, uh, made me feel fairly confident that I could do it. And the fact that I was used to pre-imagining things uh, was very helpful. I had storyboarded for live action and, and I, I knew how to stage shots and stuff like that. And, and Tom um, made the stunt team watch the, the action scenes from all my animated films um, and saying, this is how, look how he likes to block action and stuff like this. I mean, he got them pumped for it rather than like, oh, Jesus, we're now in trouble. We're going to Cartoon Boy, you know. Uh, he, he was great and he couldn't have been more supportive. Um, let's, let's take a moment. Let's remind those that are listening, 19, James D'Alessandro's 1906. What drew you to the book? Uh, tell, you know, well, tell us, tell us about it. What I was friends with a guy named Jeff Levine and am friends with a guy. He was a, at that time, he was a neighbor of mine. And so we knew each other and, and we both worked in the film industry and, and, uh, uh, he was visiting uh, up north after I moved up to work at Pixar. He was visiting us, and, and I asked what projects he was involved with, and he was working with Paula Weinstein at the time, and uh, he started mentioning this story about um, the corruption that was going on in San Francisco at a really um, rare moment in time between the 18th century and the 19th century where they literally had horses and cars coexisting, gas lights and electric lights coexisting, stage and the beginning of movies coexisting. And it's this super um, interesting time where a lot was going on in San Francisco in particular. And then, of course, this earthquake and fire happens on top of it. But there was this huge corruption scandal and, and Roosevelt had sent a guy in to kind of get in and figure out what's going on. And, and anyway, it's endlessly fascinating. And that's what got me into it. And then I read a treatment that uh, I can't remember their names at this this moment. But uh, a couple of guys had had written a treatment of the general idea of 1906, which was James D'Alessandro. James D'Alessandro had pitched the idea of a film about what preceded the earthquake, and then it goes through the earthquake. Um, these guys went a different direction. He pitched that at Warner Brothers. They said that would be a hell of a movie, and they uh, allowed him to write a book of it. But it was a movie idea before it was a book. And I liked that the treatment that I read went in a different direction, but had the, the cool um, world that James was uh, uh, first uh, interested in. So I, of course, started researching it and I got interested in, in a lot of other things that were different from the treatment and kind of focusing on, but focusing on what was going on in the city preceding the earthquake and then taking it through that. So it was a mixture of fictional things and, and real things. and Not a disaster film. Uh, if, I always thought if you do it right, people will forget about the earthquake and then suddenly the earthquake happens and throws everything upside down. 
And, and because so much was happening, you could forget. And my ideal version of it would be that the audience would not, not remember that there's an earthquake, wow. you know, and of course they're going to know it's going to be in the advertising, but the, the, the direction of it and the writing of it, the building of it should be as if there's no earthquake. And Pixar was going to do a co-production with Warner? Well, it, it was kind of a weird foggy thing where, um, I, that's what I was working on. And they came to me with the idea of Ratatouille, the, 1906 was going to be next after Incredibles. And I kind of said, well, if I do this, you know, will you help me with get this other thing going? And Warners had already owned it, but they didn't mind kind of doing a co thing. Um, it didn't end up working out that way, though. And uh, I didn't crack the story. The, mo the, the story is too big for one movie. And doing a series of movies is probably, you know, for something that's not known. I don't know. Is it still on your mind? Does it still, I still live with sure. you? I still think it would be amazing if it could be cracked. I, I couldn't crack it at that time, though. Every time I got it down to a movie size, I was throwing so much. It was like having a, a, a air balloon and you have all this great stuff in it, you know, all these beautiful things that you packed. And then you go, okay, let's go. And you go, well, it's too heavy. All right, I have to throw this out. Okay, okay, now we're six inches off the ground. Yeah, let's go. No, we need to be up in the air. Okay, I throw this out and this out and this out and this out. Okay, now we're finally in the air, but all of the stuff that I love is on the ground, you know? So it, it's, it's so massively fascinating. It probably should be a TV show, but then you're selling the earthquake short by having it on a tiny screen. So um, that's the conundrum with it. And I, I have a, a weird kind of hybrid version that, that I'm trying to get people interested in, but status quo is always kind of king and you have to overcome obstacles. Is that next maybe for you? No. No? No, I have something that I've been wanting to make for years that I that it's live action that has maybe 20 minutes of animation in it. You can't say anything nah, more than that. Okay. With John Lasseter leaving Pixar, how, how does how does everything look going forward philosophically? I, I know I know that you were mentioning that um you're not a day-to-day -day employee there, but just philosophically. Well, I, I yes. was through the production and the marketing of the film, but now that's over and I still go in, but I'm not in there every day. I'm, I'm having the vacation that I sorely need. Um, but, uh, uh, I, you know, I think that um, John was there for the most crucial part of Incredibles 2 when we were trying to figure out the story and he had a lot of really great uh, contributions and, and asking questions that that uh, pointed us in the direction of some really good answers. Um, he announced that uh, he was uh, stepping out um, just when we were starting to go into production. So it, that was something that was challenging because he is one of the founders of Pixar and, and I, I didn't want the crew to lose focus. It's emotional, you know. And uh, what I said to the crew is I brought them in and, and I said, um, you know, you have to focus on uh, not what's changing, but what brought you here. What brought you here is the desire to tell stories. And that's what's going to get you through the day is 
telling this story and telling it to, to the best of your abilities. That's going to take all of your energy. It's going to demand it. And, and you know, um, that'll end up being the thing that, that helps you get through this. And everybody sucked it up because we still had a really big, complex movie to, to do on a tight schedule. And they rallied like crazy. Um, what I would say about Pixar going forward is, of course, it's uh, different with, without John being there. Um, um, but as long as I've been at Pixar, Pixar has been changing. Originally, when George Lucas got Ed Catmull out to come west and, and hunker down in Marin County and uh, use all of his computer genius to try to create digital effects, um, Pixar was just the name of the computer, you know, and it was a little division of Lucasfilm. And uh, uh, it ended up, they ended up solving the problem of digital effects and Ed Catmull's work is the foundation of this worldwide thing now. Um, and uh, when um, Ed brought in John and John and Ed wanted to do an animated feature, George Lucas said, no, I'm really, I gotten out of it what I want to get out of it. And, but if you want to try selling this idea to somebody, you know, that's cool. They got Steve Jobs interested and Steve brought a whole lot to the table. And then Steve, you know, had to, you know, let go of it because of uh, health uh, issues. And um, so it's always been changing. It's never really been exactly the same place. It can't stay frozen in amber. There's too many people and times change and experiences change. And and um, so I guess it's, I'm just saying that it's an idea, just the way Disney was an idea. And Disney had a ups and downs, you know, uh, you know, after Walt died. And I'm not saying that, that it's the same, but uh, all I'm saying is it's a living thing. It, it, it goes up, it down, it changes, turns left, turns right. And there's an amazing collection of talent there and a foundation of supporting filmmakers' visions that is kind of the secret sauce to Pixar's enduring, continuing success. So I think that there, you know, is a very bright future for Pixar. And in fact, after Toy Story 4, there are um, three original films in a row, and they're different than other things that Pixar has done, and they're new uh, voices. Um, Domi Shi, uh, who did Bao, which was the short before our film, is, is developing a film for her to direct, and um, it's going to be a really interesting time coming up. Um, do you think the merger is going to have... You worked on Simpsons... Do you think the merger is going to impact oh, the, the way Fox merger? Yeah, is going to impact. Yeah, anything I don't with know. I mean, animation? you know, I don't know. I'm a I'm a movie historian, so it still bothers me a little bit that Columbia is at the MGM lot. You know, so what do I know? I'm like a nostalgia guy, and I'm like, no, Columbia is where Paramount. You know, right above Paramount. You know, and. You know, MGM is in Culver City and Fox should have a back lot. Where's Century City is the Fox back lot? That's not right. I mean, that's me. So I'm the last person you should ask. Thank you so much. Clement doesn't own James Bond. That's United Artist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying?